So I'm going to tell you a story about a single guy. And this single guy decided that he wanted a pet. And he wanted this pet to be unique. He didn't want anybody else to have this pet. It was going to be something that was so unique, no one else would want it. So he goes to a pet store. He starts talking to the pet store owner. And like, I just want something unique that nobody else would have. And the pet store owner, I've got it. I know what you need. I have this centipede, and it can talk. So after thinking about it for a little bit, he's like, yeah, that's what I need. I need that centipede that can talk. So the centipede came with this little box, and he was excited to take it home, and it was kind of late in the evening. So he didn't want to test that centipede in that moment. He, he set the centipede aside, and it's like, I'll talk to him in the morning. He goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning. Hey, it's Sunday. I'm going to invite my centipede to church with me. So he walks up to the box, opens the lid. Hey there, Mr. Centipede, why, why don't you go to church with me today? Centipede doesn't say anything. It's just moving around in that box, moving around. Oh, man, maybe I've been ripped off. Maybe this thing doesn't talk. What in the world? So maybe it didn't hear me. I'll talk a little louder. Hey there, Mr. Centipede. Uh, it's Sunday morning. I go to church. You're welcome to come with me. Why don't you come to church with me? Still nothing. Centipede's just moving around in that box. You can see that he's awake and alert. Nothing being said. Finally, in a last-ditch effort, he puts his face as close to that box as he can. Hello, Mr. Centipede. I hope you're having a good morning. Why don't you go to church with me and receive blessings? About that time, another loud voice booms. Give me just a second. I heard you the first time. I'm putting my shoes on. This morning, as we're continuing our series, Why I Believe, we're going to be talking about why we believe certain things about God. And for the past two weeks, we discussed why we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Last week, we discussed why we believe that the Holy Spirit is real. And this week, we will be answering the question, why should I believe that the church is essential? This morning, when we start reading in Scripture, it's going to sound familiar to you because Two weeks ago, Mark was also in this cha same chapter of Scripture. Um, and I'm going to continue essentially where he left off and continue to dig into why the church is essential. So while you're taking the time, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, it would be page 797 in your pew Bible. And uh, while you're getting to that passage, I'm going to remind you about a couple things that have happened at this point in Scripture. Uh, just before where we're going to start reading, Jesus has asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? His disciples reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And it's at this point where we're going to pick up, and this is where Simon Peter is speaking, and it, we're going to start in Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And before I dig into our specific reasons on why to believe that the church is essential, I want to kind of clear up some thoughts that may come along before we get there. 
First, I want to talk about the word that Jesus uses when he says church. I made the joke in the first service. I am from very much an East Tennessee boy, Little Roan Mountain, Tennessee. I'm not going to try to pronounce most of the Greek words I'm talking about. But I am going to tell you what this particular Greek word that's used as church actually meant. It had nothing to do with the building and everything to do with the people. Everything to do with the assembly of Jesus' people coming together for one cause and one purpose. The other thing I want to point out to you that I think is interesting, and I'm sure if you've done any kind of reading in this text, you, you've come across this. Peter's name in Greek actually means rock, just like the word that was translated rock, but they're two very different rocks. Let me explain that a little bit. Peter's name is Petros in the Greek language. And I'm going to apologize to professors and stuff if I just totally butchered that word that I learned from Bible college, but... Um, the other word is Petra. That is the name that is translated as the rock, the church. Petros, little tiny rock. You can pick it up, you can move it, you can put it wherever you need it. It can be kicked off to the side. Petros, a gigantic rock that is also used to describe a cliff. So when Peter is talking in this instance, he's acknowledging that Peter's involvement there but the even bigger thing is the statement that Peter just said. This huge statement that we call the Great Confession. And that is our first reason to believe. The church is built upon who Jesus is. The church is built upon the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And like Mark covered two weeks ago, so I won't go into every detail of this, he gave us the reminder that Jesus is not just a good person. He's not just an outstanding teacher. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And He is the only way to the Father. He is the truth, the way, and the life. But now to add even more to what Peter has said. Jesus acknowledges that this statement didn't come from Peter alone. He didn't just imagine up this statement, this great confession that he just made. It was given to him from the Father in heaven above. Peter had every reason to be able to say this statement on his own when you think about it. He, they have seen Jesus do incredible things. They have seen him literally prove to them that he's the Messiah in physical ways. But Jesus adds another element here. Not only do you know this because you've seen it, you know this because the Father has revealed it to you. As we continue and we're moving along, there's a second reason that I want to talk about for a reason to believe that the church is essential. Jesus himself is building the church. The Savior of the world founded the church, and like I was talking about, it's not literally the building here. It is the assembly of people worldwide, and, and not just the people assembled here on Melrose Street in Bristol, Tennessee, but the assembly of Christ's people worldwide. And not only is Jesus saying that he will build the church, he's saying it's a guarantee the church will be built. Jesus guarantees he will build the church. No questions asked. Jesus is building the church, and it's going to be established. But isn't it interesting that Jesus uses the phrase, I will build, and not I have built? There's, there's two good reasons behind that. The first 
is that at this point, the church as we know it would not have existed when Jesus is talking. At this point, the day of Pentecost has not happened where 3,000 are added to the number of the church and the church grows and becomes what we know it as today. The second is actually another little sub-point I want you to think about. Christ is building a church and it's ongoing. It's not stopped where we're at right now. The church is not built and complete. It's a process and Jesus is continuing to build the church for its purpose of extending the kingdom of God among all nations. And in the Great Commission, Jesus himself spoke and it supports this idea of it being a process that's not finished. It doesn't stop right here where we're at. I'm actually going to read that for you. Um, then Jesus came to them. He's specifically them in this instance speaking to his disciples. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The responsibility of the church, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Crucial, important, what we're doing. But I want you to look at what is said next. It builds upon what I just said. And I will be with you. Jesus' guarantee for us is that Christ is, that he's going to be there through the building of the church, through all the processes that we have going on. And it doesn't just stop with us in this moment, and it didn't just start when the disciples are hearing this for the first time. You know, Jesus specifically prays for us in John chapter 17. This prayer comes up, and you're like, whoa, he said my name? Nah, no. Let me explain that a little better, okay? Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, being the current disciples he's there with. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that they all may be one, just as the Father and I are one. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to a complete unity when the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be here with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus, in fact, finds us so important, finds the church so important that his prayer and encouragement to us is to be united together as the process of the church being built is happening. Jesus is with us, and Jesus will build his church. Another reason that I believe the church is essential is because of a phrase that is in our scripture directly. Because the gates of Hades will not overcome the church. I wrestled with this between the two services a little bit. Because um, I kind of left out something that was in my notes. And uh, I'm not going to do that this time. Uh, so I'm going to get a little bit personal. I apologize if you think it's out of place, but I don't think you will. Um, have you ever had a moment where you feel like the enemy's won? Um, I could think of one specifically, and it involves the church. Um, and it's not a bad story, like you're already putting in your head, oh no, he's going to tell this horror story. It's actually the opposite. Um, I, 
uh, I Johnson, graduated from Johnson Bible College in 2018, but I was actually like older when I graduated because I went right out of high school. And my church that I was at at the time really encouraged me to do this. Uh, it wasn't that they were forcing me to go. They were beyond encouraging. And uh, I ended up going, and it just didn't work. Uh, I can remember sitting in my dorm room crying and like, well, I feel like I'm supposed to be here. Why isn't this working? What is going on? And when I came back home, I felt absolutely defeated. Like, I didn't end up finishing when I got there, and it was awful. I had built it up in my head that the enemy won, and then it was over. Now, I need to give you a picture about our scripture. In this moment that Jesus is telling his disciples that the gates of Hades will not overcome the church, there's something absolutely incredible about where they are. They're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And this Caesarea Philippi is known for having these huge temples and they're carved out in mountains and there's also this cave you see behind me. This cave is literally called the Gates of Hades. Jesus is telling this huge statement about how the church will overcome the Gates of Hades in front of what his disciples think is the gates of Hades. You can't add more weight to that statement. Kyle Ottoman actually jokes in one of his sermons that this was such a place that the disciples are probably thinking in their mind, fine, Jesus, I'll go with you there, but don't tell my mom and dad I went with you to Caesarea Philippi. They're standing at what is a really scary place for them, and Jesus is making a really bold statement about who the church is. The church is built on him and is not going to be overtaken by hell. The gates of hell will not overcome the church. I cannot get past how powerful of an experience that must have been for the disciples to be standing there and hearing the Savior of the world tell them that the gates of hell will not overcome the church in front of what they imagine it to look like. That must have just added so much power to their day. And it reminds me where uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 55, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. The church will stand victorious over this all because Jesus Himself is victorious over it all. And that's who we're pointing back to in each and everything we do. So now what? You're like, all right. It's only been 10 minutes. He blew through all three of his points. We're done. All right? Okay. No. <laughs> so we can see why the church is essential, but what now? What we hear from our world are things like this. The church seems hypocritical to me. Um, I don't want to go to church because I can be church by myself. Um, I don't want to go to church because it seems like it's an exclusive club. Oh, I don't want to go to church because that is not relevant to my life. You know, I hear those things and I think maybe from time to time we as the church just need a reminder of who we are. Because maybe they're not seeing what the church is supposed to be if that's their thought about who we are. I didn't finish the story I was telling you, right? I left you kind of hanging. Uh, what ends up happening, I come home and uh, the body of Christ was at work. There are a lot of things happening that I wasn't 100% 
aware of that were happening. I did not give up on church. Uh, I just had a really clever way of handling church. I would get there five minutes after church started. If someone was sitting in the back, I would just hang out in the foyer, what you all call your narthex. Like, that's where I would hang out. And then right before invitation would hit, out the door. I was gone. Uh, That way nobody could ask me how life was going because if they were going to ask me that, I felt so defeated. My answer was going to be head down and walk out because I I just so defeated because they had celebrated this huge thing that I was going to do and I felt like I let them down. You know, I talked to you about uh, a reminder that we needed. You know, in Scripture, we're told that the church is the body of Christ. Paul reminds us of this. And it makes me think our connection here. Being a participant in the church is Christ's designs for his followers. That particular scripture in 1 Corinthians reads like this. For the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, well, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, well, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chooses. If all were a single member, where would the body be? If we all didn't have a task and a responsibility, where would we be? Probably still the one person trying to do it all themselves. It just reminds me of an episode of Andy Griffith, believe it or not. And in this particular episode, the Andy and Barney have caught four criminals who have tried to break into the bank. Well, now they only have two of them. They've got the two criminals in jail, and Barney makes some mistakes. Wouldn't you know it? And the key was hanging outside of the jail cell. They grab it. They let themselves out. They're walking out like every criminal would in these movies at this time. They were literally tiptoeing their way out, looking around. About that time, Sheriff Andy, the hero, busts in the door, puts them back in their cell, and is immediately going, okay, I've got to do something with Barney because he's going to mess this up again. So what he decides to do, he's going to put Barney up on the roof. Gomer's up on the roof. He's just recently been deputized. And he takes his job very seriously. And the two of them are up on the roof, and they're looking, and they're just kind of watching out. And Andy has left since this point. But then they realize the other two people they're looking for are standing outside the jail. And Andy and Gomer are freaking out, and they're looking over the edge of the building. And then it hits Gomer. I got it. Shazam! We call the police. Then Barney looks over. We are the police. Sometimes we need to just remember we are the church. We are described as a body. We are described as something that moves and has a function and an action. And if people are only seeing what we're doing here, they're kind of missing something that's much bigger that we're doing and that we're trying to accomplish. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a theologian. He's German, and he wrote this book called Life Together about communities of churches and people being together for Christ. And he writes, A Christian fellowship lives and exists 
by the intercession of its members for one another. Otherwise, it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother whom I pray for. No matter how much trouble he causes me, his face, that may have been completely strange and intolerable to me, is transformed in the intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ also died. The face of a forgiven sinner, like each and every one of us in this room. So I got a story to finish. For months and months, I'm going in and out. Um, I would barely talk to my family. They're here. So make sure you go say hey. Um, I'd barely even talk to them about how I felt about things. And um, it just was not good. Felt absolutely defeated. And what ends up happening is one of the bodies, one of the members of the body of Christ, takes the time to pour into an 18-year-old kid who is convinced he let every person sitting in the room down. And that's how I felt every time I walked in. And that's not where he left it. He worked with me and my sister for years after that and was just pouring into us and allowing us to see that we had a bigger purpose in God's kingdom. Uh, we served in kids' ministry stuff and helped with the kids. Uh, continued to go to church throughout my time at Northeast State. Uh, when I finished at Northeast State, I actually ended up going back to Johnson um, and downplayed it a lot because at the time I, w I had been asked to be on a staff position at that church and I didn't want everyone to know because I didn't want them to celebrate it again because I didn't have the confidence to know that it was going to go well this time. So I didn't even want them to know. And then the board of the trustees at Johnson comes and preaches and goes, yeah, and Jeremiah's going to be there next week when we get started for class. So they end up finding out, and I, my, my request was like, don't do anything. And uh, this upset the ladies' group so much. Like it was in their heart and their core that they wanted to celebrate this. And I said, it hurts me that you do. And it shouldn't. I know you're doing a great thing. I'm fully aware of that, but let's not. Let's not. Let's celebrate later. Let's celebrate later. What ends up happening is three years later, graduate, end up serving uh, in a youth ministry role there for years and got a clear understanding of what it looks like to be a part of the body of Christ, moving in a community, reaching out to students, and seeing incredible things happen because of the belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Incredible stuff that God worked out through the church. I know each one of us are never perfect. We all have our moments. But that was by design. It's designed for us to be a participant here at the church. I like the, the analogy that is used by Paul to explain the church as the bride of Christ. Because if you've ever been to a wedding, you know there's going to be bridesmaid drama. That's going to happen. So all of the ways the church is described doesn't necessarily paint a perfect picture, but it paints a picture of the fact that this is where we're supposed to be together, working together to be the body of Christ. So maybe you're here today and you've been attending for a while and you're thinking about maybe placing membership here at Central. Great. That would be an, today would be an awesome opportunity to do that. Or maybe you're here and this is one of the first times you're hearing the gospel and 
that's also great too. We would love to talk to you about what it looks like to become a follower of Jesus. If all of you will, let's stand together. Let's pray and then enter our time. Heavenly Father, you are good and we love you and thank you for each and every way that you work out things in our lives. As we come to this time of invitation, Lord, our prayers that we remember who we are, that we are the church, building up one another, guiding one another, that our Savior is our lead, and that the gates of hell will not prevail over the church when we're pointing back to our Savior. Lord, as we go throughout this day, I pray that you remind us of your goodness and greatness and ways that we can reach other people, Lord. We love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.